This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today I'm talking with Roger Baker, former CIO of Veterans Affairs and current consultant and board member. Roger is a consultant for Roger Baker's Consulting, advising federal organizations and federal service companies on government technologies issues. Previously, Roger served as the CIO for both the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Commerce. Roger helped define the role of the federal CIO following the passage of the Clinger Cohing Act. So, Roger, first, thank you for joining us. And, and we are properly social distancing. Uh, we're doing this in remote. You're doing it from your home. I'm recording from my home. Uh, first off, how are you doing? And, and welcome to the show. Oh, great. Well, thank you for having me on, Aileen. And I am uh, I'm honored to be here. Um, we are more than proper social distancing. I think it's about 900 miles uh, between us at, at this point. So I, I think we're good from, uh, from that standpoint. And, uh, and life is good. As you know, living in Florida, living on the water, and uh, I could not think of a better place to, uh, uh, to be in lockdown at this point. So I uh, hope everybody out there is doing well and uh, just pleased to be here. Well, again, thank you for joining us. I know that uh, in Florida, you have uh, 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 Governor DeSantis just uh, announced the lockdown. Uh, so you've, you've had a little bit more time of, of freedom than, than some of us. Uh, but uh, like all of us around here, staying home saves lives. So yeah, thank absolutely. you. Yep. So Roger, to get started here, um, let me ask you just in generally, was there an event or a person that you or had or an event that had a tremendous impact on you as a leader? So I wouldn't say there's there's one thing. You know, there have been a lot of people that have had very positive influences. Um, you know, we could we could probably spend the hour talking about uh, you know people that you know by the time you get to my age have really helped you a lot. Certainly, uh, Rick Shinseki and Scott Gould at Veterans Affairs, uh, Bill Daly at uh, Commerce, and before that, a number of notable people in the private sector that really helped shape uh, where I was going. But I mean, I guess if you look at it, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. But uh, I mean, I, uh, I grew up on a dairy farm. And so the notable thing that really shaped me was the desire to not be a dairy farmer for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, uh, and I kind of worked hard to make certain that, uh, you know, that I got out of that and did something different. Uh, was there, uh, you mentioned a couple of mentors. Uh, tell me about the relationship you had with some of your key mentors. Well, I mean, I, Pretty much, they're they're all working relationships. I mean, Scott Gould is one of my better friends. Um, but I mean, if you think about working for somebody like a uh, a Rick Shinseki, a lot of it is, if you will, mentorship by just showing you what you should be doing. Uh, you know, the way the way the mentor acts, uh, the way in this case he took on problems. Um, you know, his approach to things very very thoughtful, uh, making certain that it was all about. Um, uh, the problem and the customers you're serving, not the individual. I mean, I can't think of a more um, non-self-serving person than, than a Rick Shinseki. It was all about veterans. It was all about, uh, frankly, the people that he had sent into battle and giving back to them by being the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. And you look at the, the examples of um, you know, moral strength, of principles, of doing the right thing, whether it hurts or not. Um, and that's, to me, kind of what you learn from folks like that. I, it's interesting to me that even in my 50s when I was at VA and I thought uh, I had a pretty strong moral compass, 
I could learn that uh, I wasn't yet in that class. I had a lot to learn uh, from folks, uh, you know, like a Rick Shinseki. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Roger Baker, former CIO, Department of Veterans Affairs, and current consultant and board member. Roger, you know, during these very tough times, a lot of people uh, would like to think that they have a specific leadership style or their leadership style certainly change, changes during uh, times of struggle. If I was to go back in time and ask uh, some of the folks that you have worked with in the past, how would they describe you as a leader in good times and, and maybe not so good times? Well, I guess thinking about the not so good times, I'd like to think uh, that the answer there would be calm and decisive. Um, you know, it is, it's very important in the not so good times to uh, absorb risk and absorb panic and be the person that, um, you know, that everybody can rely on. If they, if they come to you with a decision that needs to be made, that you're going to make the best decision possible with as much information as you can gather, but in the time frame necessary. And then, you know, I'd, I'd use the phrase acting calm uh, because sometimes, um, you know, what's the old adage? Uh, if you can keep your head while everyone around you is losing theirs, you might not know what's going on. Um, you know, I think there's some of that that, that goes on in these things. It, it, um, there's a lot of lack of data in, in the dark times. You really don't know everything that's going on, and you've got to know that, and you've got to know that you're still responsible for making the best decision possible, even when that's the case. And that's, you know, whether it's a health crisis, you know, we dealt with uh, H1N1 when I was at VA, or if it's just a, an IT program problem. You're still not going to get all the information, and eventually you've got to make the best decision you can to keep things moving forward. So in the good times, I, you know, I kind of hope people think that, uh, that I was fun to be around and focused and decisive. Um, I like to think of myself as a change agent, and um, you know, that's, a, uh, that's something that I hope they would, they would say, but uh, I think you really define yourself and how you deal with the dark times. So you certainly have had some very big jobs. Uh, what were some of the most important decisions you can make as a leader for your organization, for large companies, or maybe even some of the smaller organizations that you work with? Well, I've, I've always believed that it's important to make decisions and not let things sit. Um, you know, I, I kind of try to think of when does this decision need to get made by? When will it be pro most productive for everybody if I make the decision? And then recognize that you're going to accept some risk because you can't have perfect information. And I would assert even if you had perfect information, you still can't make a perfect decision. And so you, you've got to recognize when to take a risk, um, how, to be, um, how to be human about the fact you just took a risk. You know, you can, you can be very confident in the decision you made and still not try to, you know, just blow it by everybody. Um, you can buy them in as part of your team. We're going to make this decision. It might not go well. If it doesn't go well, it's on me, not on you. Let's go. Um, and so I think, you know, that to me is the, is the key thing is just learning to be uh, decisive and learning to be as involving as possible of people. You know, having some empathy. I, I often tell people that the boss I learned the most from was the worst boss I ever worked for. Because I kept, you know, throughout my career asking myself, how would that boss have handled things? Good, I'm going to do the exact opposite. And that seemed to work out really, really well for me. So when leaders today are, uh, you know, approaching some of these very tough decisions they're making about their organization, what recommendations would you have to them to, what are the first steps? How would you be that decisive in 
um, thoroughly, you know, communicative uh, of a leader that can provide that kind of guidance? Well, I guess I think it starts with empathy. Um, you know, I have a, um, uh, I have a blue collar background and I've seen the impact of a lot of really poor management decisions on the working level folks. And, and I think having that, uh, that empathy to recognize that it may be your responsibility to make a decision, that doesn't make you any better than the folks that are going to be affected by that decision. And so how's that decision going to play out? What's the impact going to be on, on the people that have to implement it? And sometimes you have to make decisions where you know it's going to have a, a bad impact. I mean, I never served uh, from a military standpoint, but I certainly have seen a lot of places where you know that you, uh, people were faced with only bad choices. And just being empathetic and letting folks know that you're there with them as well. Um, you know, it's not, uh, it's the old phrase, seagull-style management, you know, flying in, dropping a load, and flying back out. Um, I think you've, you've got to start with empathy. You've got to recognize who you're going to affect with the decision. And then you can move forward from there, recognizing that you're part of a team. And your role on that team may be as the decision maker, but you're still just part of a team. And by and large, if you've got a good team, the people that are going to go implement your decision are much better at implementing than you ever would be. So you better be listening to them with the things that, that they're expert at and incorporating those sort of things in. And then, as you said, communicating, making certain that everybody understands not only what, but why, and to the extent you can, how on, on decisions. I'm speaking with Roger Baker, former CIO of Department of Veterans Affairs and current consultant board member. After the break, we'll find out from Roger his view of the differences and similarities of the roles of technologies leaders in government versus private sector. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Roger Baker, former CIO of the Department of Veterans Affairs and current consultant and board member. Now, Roger, what accomplishment, and you've had so many, are you proud of as working as a consultant or uh, as a board member in your current role today? You know, it's interesting because when you're, when you're doing the consulting and board member stuff, um, you're just a participant. And I think it's interesting how often you get asked for your views, um, you give people a good, honest view, and nothing ever happens uh, from that. So my, my clients have won a lot of things, and the businesses have gone very, very well. But I can't look at something and say, boy, did I really you know, make that event happen? No, probably not. I mean, some of the, some of the companies that, uh, that I work with have, uh, have been sold. And uh, you know, certainly lots of people uh, did well from, from those things. And that was great. Um, but you know, it's just one of those things where the consultant business is so different from, uh, from being in government. You know, we talked about decisions a lot in the last section. And, and uh, I felt like I was making decisions all day, every day in government. And as a, as a consultant, I mean, I hate to say this, there are really two decisions. You know, one is, do you want cream in your coffee? And the other is, are you going to tell them the blunt truth or are you going to sugarcoat it? And other than that, um, you know, you, you are an advisor. And boy, I tell you, it takes some getting used to uh, moving from somebody who's really responsible and takes accountability to someone who provides advice. You can even encourage them to take the advice, but you can't make them take your advice as a consultant. You know, I, I think that's the biggest uh, jump uh, is from going from a position from where you get to execute and you get to, you get to have your hands on the wheel, right? 
yep. uh, versus where you're advising and you're not necessarily telling somebody where to drive using the car analogy, but you're telling them maybe warnings about the drive. How did yep. you make that transition? Uh, and, and how do you, you know, even change your communication style to make that transition? There's a lot of people out there right now that are transitioning out of government and, and getting an opportunity to really help some of these small startups that are bringing incredible technology to the table. But how do they make that transition successful like you have? Well, I mean, you've got to understand what you're good at and what you're not uh, necessarily good at and make certain that you're advising in the areas where uh, where you really have strengths. I think it's, um, and it's also important to, you know, if you're going to give very pointed, let's call it, um, or maybe blunt advice on something, make certain that's something that you're perfectly willing to defend and you're certain you're right on. Uh, I have seen a lot of, uh, a lot of consultants, you know, working with other folks that um, are happy to get, you know, way off into the weeds on topics. And I think some of that is why you don't necessarily get listened to as much. Uh, you know, certainly if somebody is asking me about what's going on inside of IT at VA, um, I think they're probably going to be listening. At the, same, at the same time, I'll be the first person to tell them, I've been gone for seven years and there's a new sheriff in town. And by the way, he does things differently than I did and he's doing a great job. So, you know, we can speculate. But, you know, let's make certain we understand what we know and what we don't know in, in that environment. So some of it is making certain that you're into your specialties. And the second one is, as you pointed out a number of times, getting your communication style down so that it's you, it's authentic, but it also works well with what your clients are looking for. You know, in the last three years, really, uh, you know, especially within the last five years, technology, the clock speed of technology has been racing ahead. So the ability for the federal government to really leverage technology, like we're being forced to today, using remote uh, processing, using cloud computing, using 5G to get continue to keep the trains running, right? Um, is there something that you would change to help I mean, government leaders actually understand and be able to take advantage of some of these rapidly changing, very productive yet disruptive technologies out there? Well, yeah, you know, un unfortunately, um, my general view is that government runs between 10 and 15 years behind the private sector, especially when you're talking about uh, the high technology side of things. And a lot of it is because of the lack of an expectation level. You know, uh, one of the things that you have to do coming in, I believe, you know, if you're coming in from the private sector, is recognize that you've been operating near the forefront of technology. And a lot of times the decisions you have to make inside of government are to just replicate what you've already seen being done successfully. You know, um, when I came into government in, at VA in 2009, we had been through uh, the, uh, the Titan Rain attacks on our network when I was at, uh, at General Dynamics. And we had, in 2004, 5, and 6, done an incredible amount of work to deal with that and button things down to the point where uh, everything related to um, any kind of access, any kind of privileged access to the accounts was done with two-factor uh, authentication. And it was just a given. And so my first day at, uh, at VA and probably my second meeting, I started asking about where are we on two-factor authentication? And much to my chagrin, one of the last questions I asked in 2013 was, where are we on two-factor authentication? You know, trying to drive that forward and trying to drive forward the things that you know uh, should be done from a 
from, from your experience in the private sector and drag those into the government is really, really hard. You know, the, the one I'm wrestling with right now is, uh, is networking. It's amazing to me how far behind the government is in providing bandwidth to its users and to its systems and to its data centers compared to some of the private sector organizations I've dealt with. You know, most of the private sector organizations I deal with want to be in a situation where their employees can, can consider bandwidth to be an infinite resource. Don't be bandwidth constrained in your development of anything going on, especially companies that are at all cloud oriented. And yet uh, you look at some of the news coming out of uh, places like VA and they're having to really cut back on the number of people that can telework or the number of people that can have uh, telehealth visits because they don't have the network bandwidth to support all of that. And it's just, um, it's a problem that, you know, stems from that lack of expectation. You know, these companies that, that are providing eff effectively infinite bandwidth for their employees started years ago to say, I want to achieve that goal. And it may sound outlandish today, but that's the goal I want to get to. And you look at where they are today in this environment and working remote is just a standard way of doing business for them. I mean, I've been working remote since, uh, you know, working with high technology companies before I ever got to government. You know, one of the startups I worked with in 1997 and 98 was a completely virtual company. We all worked from our homes, Virginia, Michigan, Canada, all over the country. And we only got together at customer sites because we needed to be in person for those things. But other than that, we did everything over, uh, over the computer and over the phone before we had any video conferencing. So it's, um, you know, dealing with that expectation level. And trying to drive that expectation level into government, and I'm sorry to say it again, but really, you know, unfortunately, government tends to be 10 to 15 years behind the high technology industry. What do you think causes that? Is it procurement and contracting rules? Is it the lack of expectation of being able to get something done? Um, what is it that is it? If you had a magic wand, you would change to help? You know, because like you're like you said, it's not that these technology leaders in the government don't know where things need to go. They're very bright, they're very dedicated, but what's stopping them from being able to do it? So government is very risk averse. And if you look at the definition, definition of risk in a financial model, there's both a downside and an upside to risk. And what government has done very, very effectively by trying to tightly constrain risk is cut out all of the upside. And so taking a risk in government can be a career-ending uh, event. And we, we've all seen that sort of thing where somebody takes a risk, it ends up badly, and they end up pushed out. In the private sector these days, there's a very good understanding that the only way you're going to move things forward dramatically is by taking a risk. And by definition, if you're taking risks, you run a substantial probability of failure. But if you bundle together enough uh, very positive risks and you manage them appropriately, what you'll find is even if you're only hitting on one and three, you're still far ahead of where you would be if you weren't taking the risks. And so the big issue in government is that risk aversion. You know, one of, one of my proudest accomplishments in government is that the, uh, the Veterans Benefits Management System basically has eradicated all of the paper at uh, VBA. And if you look at where we stood in 2011 when we started that system, there were IG reports about floors in buildings that were sagging, cement floors that were sagging because of the amount of paper VBA was storing in the file cabinets there. And I just saw, you know, six months ago, 
they announced they had no more paper at VBA. All the files have been, uh, have been made electronic. There were a lot of risks taken in getting VBMS done. First of all, we, it was the first billion dollar program to go fully agile. We started, we started in 2010, 2011, fully agile with VBMS. We started uh, with telling VBA that there was gonna be no more paper. We started with, we're gonna do work processes a different way. You're gonna be able to work from home. All these things were, were viewed as risks at the time. And yet today, you look at that system, and I won't tell you it's perfect, but I will tell you that it's there, and it's done an awesome job at being part of solving the backlog for VA. And without risks taken all the way along by me, by Secretary Shinseki, by the program managers, by Secretary, uh, Undersecretary Hickey as the business manager in, in, in there, that system wouldn't exist today. And it was, again, it was only because of the willingness to take those risks and suffer the slings and arrows that that got there. And, and the tie up on that is that there are hundreds of thousands, even millions of veterans that, they, that get their benefits today much faster than they did in the paper environment. Well, thank you for doing that too. Um, having uh, uh, most of my family be veterans. Um, I'm speaking with Roger Baker, former CIO of Veterans Affair and current consultant and board member. Coming up next, we'll talk about how marrying your passion with your skills can really drive your career. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm with Roger Baker, former CIO of Veteran Affairs and current consultant and board member. Roger, you became the CIO for an agency, a federal agency, right after Klinger Cohen Act and became a reality. And you helped define really what a CIO was in the government at that time. Tell us about uh, that act and about your role during that time and, and the environment, because we were just in the earlier segment talking about change, and that was a big moment in change for IT executives in government. Yeah, it was a big moment of change for me. You know, the, the funny part is, um, in 1997, I was working for Visa uh, and building their internet banking um, technology. And uh, that part of the business was sold. I had what's called a golden parachute, which meant um, I got paid, but I also couldn't work for anybody. And I mean, there were 50,000 companies, I swear, in the list um, that, you know, that I couldn't go to work for, places like Schwab and other places that I would have loved to have gone to work for. But the government wasn't one of those. And the uh, Department of Commerce was looking for somebody who knew the, uh, the internet. I had just been building internet banking, so I had a pretty good idea of what was going on in the internet. And um, so they interviewed me for the job. And one of the funnest parts of it was, I certainly was on the fence when I started to understand what it meant to be a government CIO, including about a 90% cut in salary at, at that point in time. Um, but I was outside playing basketball with my kids one afternoon and my wife leaned out the door and said, the secretary is on the phone. I mean, just one of those inquisitive, she didn't know quite what was going on. And I went in, I picked up the phone and I said, yes, sir. And he said, shortly, you know, I'm on my way to China in the Air Force One with the president, but I wanted to call and make certain you're going to take this job. <laughs> and, and what do you say to that? Um, so I was uh, about three weeks later, the CIO of the Department of uh, Commerce. And, uh, and, and we, were, uh, we were off and rolling in, uh, in learning things about, about government and about the way government works. I knew nothing. Uh, about government at that point in time, but it was uh, it was fun. It was doing something entirely different, something a technologist doesn't normally get to do. I mean, I went from uh, running a, a good organization at Visa 
and I came in as an SES six reporting to uh, to the Secretary of Commerce. And as I looked at my job at Commerce and the problems I had as a CIO, you know, you could go through and you could, you could compare and contrast what was this like at Visa and what's it like at the Department of Commerce and what would we do differently? Getting control of the budget, getting control of the technologies that are being used. I hate to say it, but eradicating uh, programs that were so far behind that they were never going to deliver anything. And just trying to get the most out of the dollars uh, that, that, that we were spending at that point. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the federal CIO job and uh, some, of the, some of the worst criticism I ever came in for was actually um, having spoken out on the need for a central federal CIO. There were a lot of folks, including folks at the White House, that didn't think that was a, uh, that was a good idea. And I, I, uh, I remember walking, I, I'd been in the press a number of times um, relative to the, you know, we need a central federal CIO. And I walked into Secretary Daley's office uh, one time and it was a one minute meeting and he looked at me and he said, I just got a call from the white house and they don't like these articles on the federal CIO. And I'm thinking, well, that was a short career in the government. I, I guess I'll be gone now. And Daly just looked at me and said, but I like it. Keep going. And so, you, you know, we talked about bosses in the beginning and what are great bosses. That's a great boss who basically just took all the risk and said, you know, I'll handle the white house. You handle what you're working on here and just keep going. So I, I loved him. I, he was a great guy to work for, and I thought we made a lot of progress. We eventually ended up with a federal CIO, so I was pretty happy about that. The biggest obstacle in adoption of technology is usually culture. The biggest obstacle of change is usually culture. How do you keep your teams focused on sometimes what others may think is an impossible job to get done? Well, specifically if you're taking on an impossible job, um, that's actually fun. Um, you know, the, the, the hard jobs to get people interested in are the, uh, the mundane ones, the, the network management, the data center management. Um, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that I'm in technology at all is that the problems tend to be fun and challenging. Um, you know, it, it takes longer to do the impossible than it does the, uh, the mundane. A lot of times, if you can get your team focused on, we're going to do something that nobody has ever done before, that's, that's one of those things. I think in that situation, being a leader is really, really easy uh, because everybody buys into those kind of visions. And it was that way with, uh, it was that way with VBMS for me and, and VA. It was that way with internet banking at Visa uh, for me. It was that way for homelessness, veteran homelessness with, uh, with Rick Shinseki. If you remember, he set out a goal of no veteran homeless. Now, he knew we were never gonna achieve that goal, but his view was that if he said, I wanna reduce homelessness by 10%, we'd go out and ask for more budget and do a few things that we'd been doing um, a little bit harder. Whereas if he says no veteran homelessness, that means you've gotta think of some transformative ideas. And if you look at the way that HUD and VA and other organizations work together today, and the fact that some cities have completely eradicated veteran homelessness, or should I say had uh, before the current uh, downturn, I think what you find is that you know, those kind of visions and those kind of let's do the impossible are the ones where things really, really get done. And again, they're fun. That's, that's, uh, that's the kind of thing that you can really wrap yourself around. 
You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Roger Baker, former CIO of the Department of Veteran Affairs and current consultant and board member. Now, you, you've taken on some pretty big, uh, you know, tasks. Um, tell me about an accomplishment or maybe even a mistake that really shaped your career and who you are today, and any advice or lessons learned that you could share. Well, it's interesting. Um, I would tell you that going and being the CEO of a company was the biggest mistake I made uh, in my career. And it really comes down to um, getting out of my comfort lane. Uh, I think I did fine in the job, but I sure didn't have any fun. And I think for me, um, you know, fun is a key part of the job and they're not fun all the time. But the question is, you know, what's, what's stimulating? What causes you to enjoy being at work? And what causes you to feel like you've really done something that you're going to be proud of um, when you're in your 60s and you're a consultant and nobody's listening to you anymore? Um, and so, you know, I like to look back on a lot of these things that have gotten done. And I hope I'm objective about my role in them, but I know I played a role. And, uh, and I enjoy you know, when I do have that reflection. There's nothing about having been the CEO of a company that I look back on and reflect and have any positivity about other than the individuals that were in the company and making friends with some of those folks. Uh, but, you know, I, I, uh, I went to business school. I went to a top five business school. And so the mantra there was, you know, you need to be a CEO very quickly. Wrong thing for me. Um, you know, watch what you wish for. You just might get it. So what was the thing you liked least about being a CEO? Cash flow. Um, you, um, you recognize that if you don't have money in the bank, your employees aren't going to get paid. And I take, it, take that very, very personally. It's something that you know, government folks haven't ever had to deal with. But you know, if, it's, if payroll is Friday and it's Wednesday and the check from that big customer hasn't yet come in and the banks have made it clear that not, they're not loaning you any more money, it's an extremely stressful evening. Let's just say it that way. Um, and, and what I found was that I didn't deal with that kind of stress. I can deal with the stress of billion dollar decisions in the government easily. It doesn't really cause me any stress. Stress about whether or not somebody's going to get their paycheck and feed their kids. Yeah, that causes me a lot of stress. And it just, it was not good from my perspective. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Roger Baker, former CIO of the Veterans Affairs and current consultant and board member. Next, we'll find out Roger's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Roger Baker, former CIO of Veteran Affairs and current consultant and board member. Roger, let's start back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up on a dairy farm in, uh, in mid-Michigan. Um, the story is, and, and I pretty much remember it to be true, I was driving a tractor on the road by the time I was five years old. Um, we worked a lot of 16-hour uh, days in the summer baling hay and, uh, and in the winters just doing the stuff with the cows. I, I, I do remember uh, from when I was 10 to when I was 12, I was the one who got up at 4 o'clock every morning and chased the cows in. And that includes uh, some days that I swear were 20 degrees below zero. So I, um, I was kind of focused on not being a farmer the rest of my life. Uh, you know, so that's, uh, that's turned out pretty well. 
Now, I've got to ask you a question. I mean, having, you know, had, had four kids and, and have a grandchild that's four, uh, how in the heck did you push the gas pedal and drive the tractor at the same time at five years old? <laughs> well, so it didn't, didn't work quite that way. Um, I would get on the tractor. Dad would put it in first gear, and he'd point down the road, and he'd say, just stay on that line. And uh, I was probably going all of two miles an hour. But you're right, at five, uh, I would not have been able, I, I might have been able to stand on the clutch, uh, you know, to stop the thing going. But typically what occurred is there was somebody at the other end who, you know, walked out, got on the tractor and pulled the thing in. But uh, yeah, no, I, I remember doing it. it um, I can't tell you that I was all that worried about it. Maybe I was too young and too dumb to be worried about it. But uh, yeah, you take on some amazing responsibilities in, uh, in situations like that and you just get used to it. So where'd you go to college? Oh, I'm a Michigan Wolverine. Uh, I spent uh, seven years getting out of Ann Arbor. It was all a very, very good time. Um, and, you know, the joke I tell people is that I was still able to uh, pass a Senate confirmation uh, background check, even though I lived seven years in Ann Arbor, which that's a feat by itself. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, quite a place and quite a time. But, boy, you can't, you can't ask for anything more fun than, uh, than that high-end high college town. Uh, approach to things. You're thinking all the time. You're trying to, you know, change the world when you're 19 years old, and you don't realize how futile it is yet. Uh, which is uh, th that was fun. So you you took another big job because in, and you graduated in 1979 with a computer science degree, right? Yeah. And at that point, uh, you know, the world wasn't hyper connected. Um, you know, there was a lot of people studying computer science. Uh, uh, matter of fact, our phone probably would have been the size of a computer that would take up an entire data center today with the same kind of compute power. So what made yep. you go into computer science and, and, and what led you down that path to, to technology at that time? Well, you know, so I'm just going to go with a funny story here for a second. But uh, if you remember using 300 baud teletype terminals yes, uh, or the move to a 1200 baud silent 700 uh, Texas instrument uh, terminal, I mean, I thought I was in heaven when uh, I think it was probably 79 when I got the, uh, the TI Silent 700. And I, you know, I think it's always funny to uh, try and explain to people what listening to a modem train sounds like, um, because it's, uh, it's not something that uh, anybody under probably 40 these days has ever heard. Um, I got into computer science because I figured out that being an English professor wasn't going to have a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of financial remuneration to it. And uh, I was paying for my own college. And so at, at the four-year point, I was going to graduate whatever degree I got. And I had a very kindly uh, computer science professor. The, uh, the first course I took in, in the second semester of my sophomore year point out to me that if I got a software degree, I was pretty much guaranteed a job and, uh, and I would be making good money. And so I took the mercenary route and, uh, and did that. That same professor, when I graduated, said, you know, what you really should do is get your MBA to go with this. And so I did that as well. Uh, I, I went out and worked for a few years and then came back and got my, uh, my MBA. And, you know, from there, it's all been just, you know, working through the, the between technology and marketing and management. Uh, and I ended up working with a bunch of great technology companies, uh, doing some really, really interesting things. It was all fun. It was all uh, a great way to make a living and have fun when you still wish you were an English professor. If uh, well, I was to go back and ask Roger at 22 years old, uh, he'd be, uh, had left private sector, gone into government and be living in Florida right now. What do you think he would say? Uh, that's pretty nice. Um, you know, 
I, I think I was more broke at 22 than, uh, than any time uh, ever. Uh, I, I got married at 24, and I swear we took the last money out of my bank account to buy, uh, to buy the engagement ring, uh, and, and we went on from there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I guess I view myself as a, uh, as a farm kid who, uh, who got very lucky, and things have turned out very, very well. Now, I like to think I participated in some of that luck, but somebody's been very good to me, and uh, so I have, I have a lot of faith because of that. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Roger Baker, former CIO of Veteran Affairs and current consultant and board member. Um, so, Roger, let me ask you, what do you think the biggest challenge for government executives will be next, considering what's happening, the speed of technology, the challenges we're facing today? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of view that everything changes uh, after this pandemic, and some things will be, will be very positive. We've been moving along a path to virtual. I think that accelerates dramatically uh, at this point. If you're, if you're living in a world where there's kind of constant uh, pandemic threat, which I think is a possibility coming out of, uh, coming out of this, then people are going to want to try to stay out of hospitals as much as they possibly can, which means we need to really accelerate telehealth. How do we do that? How do we do that from a VA perspective along with the private sector? How do we work much more closely with the private sector to address these problems? You know, what, one of the things that I found interesting is, uh, you know, VA is a huge organization and it thinks of itself as very demanding on technology. But as you look at adding, say, 100,000 people doing telehealth visits, 100,000 medical professionals doing telehealth visits with veterans all day long, that's still not any kind of a significant demand on the video networks that people have built in the private sector at this point. And so the government is going to have to work much more closely and much more collaboratively with private sector organizations to bring itself into the 2020s in dealing with the technologies that people are going to expect. We've always had that problem. That problem just accelerates tremendously as a result of, of, this, of this pandemic. Think of the business models that are going to change. Um, you know, if you don't own Amazon stock, think about what's going to happen with, uh, with an organization like Amazon that's focused on home delivery and you don't have to go out and get it. Uh, boy, did they look smart for buying Whole Foods a few years ago because I could, I could foresee a world where uh, nobody ever goes to the grocery store anymore. You know, everything is, is home delivery from a grocery standpoint because everybody's going to try that over the next couple of months. And you're going to figure out that, boy, that saves me having to go do those things. And so think of, think of all of the tried and true business models that just aren't going to be acceptable anymore, uh, including telework as the biggest one. Why does an organization have to have its employees show up in these huge buildings to work together? We're proving over the next, you know, three, four, five months that it can be done. And, and I've been doing it since 1997, for goodness sakes. So it's not that difficult, but it has to do with the management style and what you're asking your employees to do. And so you're going to have to become a, um, you're going to have to figure out how private sector managers accept the fact that their employees aren't showing up every day and yet are very, very productive when they do that. And you're going to have to work in that kind of an environment. And you have to do the same with the technologies that enable that. So it's, it's going to be a challenge for folks that are used to doing business in a world where everybody comes into the office. It's just, I think we're going to get away from that very quickly. Let me turn that around. We talked about government executives and this change. Um, 
drastic change that we're all expecting after this pandemic and, and with the clock speed of technology. What about private sector? Not all private sector organizations are, as, I, as you described, that evolved in adopting technology and telework. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenges to some of those bigger, larger companies that haven't really made that move yet? So I think they're, they're going to have to change their business models to adapt to the new, uh, the new world of things. I mean, if you're not selling through, if you're a small business today doing commercial work and you're not selling through Amazon, I'm afraid you're probably going to end up in that situation where you've almost got to uh, be putting your wares up, up on Amazon. And I understand from friends of mine that, that own companies like that, it's not a friendly environment. But you've got to be able to reach out to uh, to so many folks and get your product sold. And Amazon really has a phenomenal share of of those eyeballs for people that are that are shopping. And this pandemic is only going to accelerate that. So you're going to have to look at those trends and figure out how your business is going to evolve to stay in business. And then capitalism is going to take over. Um, you know, some businesses are going to go out not not directly because of the pandemic, but because they didn't evolve to the changed world that the pandemic caused. Um, for me, it's a great time to be, um, uh, you know, to be able to be a consultant, to do a little sitting on the beach and sit back and say, I don't have to take that problem on. But at the same time, I've spent the last, you know, 50 years really focused on how does the world change and how can we make the world change? And this is the, the, the silver lining to this is that it's going to accelerate a number of ways that the world is changing and make that happen much more quickly just because people are going to want to work in a much more disconnected environment and live in a much more disconnected environment. Should I, I had a, uh, uh, a cocktail happy hour with friends from Michigan yesterday at five o'clock over video. That's the only way we're seeing each other these days. Talk about why Zoom is, uh, is going uh, bonkers or why uh, Google or others are going bonkers. Um, social networking has, uh, has gone up another level at this point. Your career and your success uh, have truly been inspirational, and I really enjoyed our talk today. But I have to ask you, on our final question, do you have any final pearls of wisdom you have for the next generation of technology leaders, whether it be in industry or government? Well, thank you uh, for, for the compliment. I, um, I think you've got to have fun doing what you're doing. I think you've got to try to change the world. Um, and don't expect that you're going to be successful at that. But, you know, every once in a while, somebody is. And, and I think that's kind of the driving thing. How do I make myself happy with, uh, with what I'm doing? How do I make myself very productive with, with what I'm doing? And how do I become the, the best me that, that I possibly can? And that's where, you know, when you're looking back, uh, that's, that to me is the, the important piece of it. Um, you know, not just the individual things, but did you, did you like what you did? Are you happy with yourself? Um, when your kids ask you what you did, do you have an answer that, you know, that isn't effectively, uh, I sat in an office for a long period of time. Uh, I, I think that if, if you're talking from a business standpoint, that's the rewarding part is make something change and, uh, and enjoy that. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Roger Baker. I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some very valuable advice. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.